Today, I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Swan Private. Now, you know from listening to this show that our money is broken. Fortunately, we have Bitcoin, a better money that will help us build a brighter future. But if you don't have a Bitcoin strategy and a trusted partner to help you execute that strategy, then you're probably going to fall behind. Now, I've known the Swan Bitcoin team for years. The Bitcoiners at Swan are mission driven and have deep expertise and respect in the Bitcoin space. In my opinion, this is the team you want on your side. Today, I'd like to highlight Swan's private client services division, which guides high net worth individuals and businesses around the world toward building and preserving wealth with Bitcoin. So visit swanprivate.com and learn how this concierge service gives you direct access to your dedicated Bitcoin advisor by phone, messaging, and email. Swan will guide you on complex areas such as self-custody, or you can choose to hold your Bitcoin through Swan with one of the largest U.S. regulated custodians. So make your first purchase with Swan Private and get $100 of Bitcoin. Just tell them that I sent you. You know, an opportunity like this to build and preserve legacy impacting wealth for your family and company will not likely be seen again in our lifetimes. Sign up at swanprivate.com today, mention Breedlove to your advisor, and get $100 in free Bitcoin when you make your first buy. Mr. Newt Holm, welcome back to the What Is Money show. Thanks a lot, Robert. Nice to be here. Great to have you on again. Um, so today we're going to jump through a couple of documents. Uh, one is this article you shared with me titled, Real Scaling Solution for Bitcoin. This is a Bitcoin Magazine article from uh i don't know what the date it was published uh, quite recent I, I wrote it like a week ago okay it's quite, quite i think it came out monday uh, great so this is a mid you know we're recording this in late july 2022 so this is uh, a recent article and uh, i will start with just i mean i guess let's start with just your perspective what what is this article? Why did you write it? And what's it about? Yeah, I had the uh, pleasure of hanging out with a whole bunch of Bitcoiners in Madeira uh, like uh, one and a half months ago. Uh, and uh, we had a lot of philosophical discussions as, as we do, as you know. <laughs> uh, so, and we had a lot of good times and um, we bounced ideas around as you do. You have these conversations in real life as you have them in this format. And um, well, Bitcoiners, passionate Bitcoiners talk to each other and uh, find each other's thoughts intriguing. And we're not afraid to, to, to speak our minds and we get something out of that. And uh, um, I've, I, uh, thought back about the, the events of the week and how how friendly everyone was and how that is always the case within Bitcoin circles. We, uh, we pick up the bill whenever we can and we, we don't really use money that often. Um, I mean, someone has to pay for, for this and that, but, but we, these microtransactions that are so popular, they don't seem to happen. Um, and I think that is for two main reasons. And the first is, of course, that Bitcoin incentivizes saving rather than spending. You, you accumulate Bitcoin, and in, especially in this phase here, you 
almost all of us, we, we want to stack sets and not use them because we believe they will go up in value over time and our, we will increase our purchasing power. But I think there's something more to it than that. Um, if, you, um, if you think about how you interact with your family and your closest friends, um, the, the case is the same. You can, you can borrow each other's stuff. You can, uh, you know, uh, pay for something or give them something. And you don't even need to know that you're getting something back in the future. You just count on them to have your back whenever possible. And if, if you backtrack and think about monetary history and why cash was invented in the first place, uh, it was to, to facilitate trade between people that didn't know each other so that you could interact with strangers. Because within, within the small villages, the hunter-gatherer villages, people just, uh, uh, you know, live their lives and uh, exchanged value for value. Um, so, so I think the, uh, having Bitcoin as a, as a common um, interest, uh, it sort of enables that thing to happen again, that we, we trust each other more. Uh, I, I, saw the, I saw you just tweeted something along these lines that uh, the, the, uh, uh, the ability to verify everything in Bitcoin enables us to trust each other more. And that, that is really the, the essence of the article. So, um, and if you, if you do what I try to do all the time to follow the thought thread where, or the thought vector, whatever, wherever it leads me, um, I see the necessity for transactions going down over time and not up. Because first of all, we won't frivolously spend our money on, on bullshit all the time, but also that we will be wealthier and therefore uh, we can afford to be more altruistic to one another. Mm. And uh, imagine that it's not just this <laughs> 20 Bitcoiners in the restaurant that are orange pilled, but, but everyone, the restaurant owner and his supply chain and, and everyone. And you realize that the division of labor can sort of happen by itself from just the trust uh, that we have uh, among ourselves because we're running this experiment of Bitcoin in the mm. back of our heads. Mm. I mean, uh, but there, there's so much more to it than this when you really start thinking about this thing. Um, a lot of it comes from a, a thing that Jeff Booth uh, says a lot of times, and that's uh, that Bitcoin is a bridge to the other side. And I always try to imagine what that other side might look like. Like what what is a hyper-Bitcoinized world, what, what does that entail? And what does it look like? And to me, it's uh, the, the only conclusions I can draw is like, Bitcoin changes people a lot. And, and you know this personally, I know this personally. I mean, we, um, we become more stoic and less, we, we crave fewer material goods. We, we just want, a good life and we just want to be sure that we we can survive long term and we can reproduce and provide something for our children and that does not necessarily mean uh, a, a ton of crappy christmas gifts from cheap chinese plastic toys that's not it we're we're, we're trying to build something long term and that's why you see all these you know organic farmers and 
the beef initiative and all, all this stuff happening in bitcoin it's it's sort of a um i wouldn't call it that we're regressing into something that like a lifestyle that's more akin to the 18th century because i don't I don't really think that is true but we're headed in into a, a world which is not based on consumerism at all and that is a very very different world from what we're living in now because everyone alive today um, has only ever lived under a fiat monetary system and that is true for us definitely but it's also at least partially true for our parents and even our grandparents because fiat money started it preceded the first world war so we've only ever seen this this type of world where there's a, an elite leaching value out, off of everyone else by diluting the value of everyone's money and making everyone into a hamster running around in their wheels thinking they'll be happy if they if they can just afford a new car or a, a, a new vacation every year. And I don't think that is um, that will be reality in the future. I think we're headed somewhere else. Uh, because of this phenomenon that Bitcoin changes you as much as it does. So, uh, and in, in the book, I talk a lot about time preference and how time preference is related to fear and love. And that a high time preference is a, a fearful mode of being. Because when you don't have anything, if, you, if you're robbed of everything you own, you, uh, um, you need to find food and shelter and you need to, to think very short term. Uh, and when doing that, you, you, you're bound to be afraid of other people and like really protective and make irrational bad decisions. And when you have low time preference and can think ahead long term, you can afford to be altruistic and loving. So I think the Beatles were right. Uh, all you need is love. They just hadn't found the mathematical formula for it yet, which is Bitcoin. So So what we're doing by running this mathematical experiment in, in the back of our heads is where we're, uh, the private keys we have, they're, they're literally keys to our hearts, unlocking them so we can wear them on our sleeves in public. And that's what I think is so beautiful. And uh, I think the term toxic maximalism is so wrong in that sense, because what we're doing is we're, for no selfish reason at all, we're, we're warning people about, about scammers and you know, trying to make the world a better place. Um, so yeah, that's basically what the article was about. Hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. <clears throat> the it makes sense that you know we call this nickel and diming in the U.S. I don't know if that's a I don't know if that's a universal expression or not. But this idea that every little quanta of cost is being captured and passed on. You know, you, you see people that like 10 friends that go out to eat and the check comes and they all start getting out their calculators and counting. And, you yeah. know, that's, um, it makes sense that that would be less prevalent overall in a world that's much wealthier, right? That you'd be less sensitive to these little micro cost. And so therefore you'd have less need for microtransactions, I guess, to, to cover them. Um, and it also makes sense to me that overall, like this is, I guess, independent of the wealth available in the world, but by using a money that successfully minimizes trust, 
All right. That's, that's the whole value prop of Bitcoin is, you know, don't trust verify the whole, the whole system is basically 100% verification, 0% trust, more or less. Yeah. You could say there's still some, you have to trust the miners to behave in their own self-interest and things like that. Um, but as we lower the cost of trust, you would expect to see a proliferation, like a, a more trust, trusting world, which is kind of paradoxical. And that's the tweet I sent out, which actually reading your article reminded me of this tweet. I sent this tweet originally September 2021. Uh, cool. So <laughs> it's funny. Once again, I guess we're kind of like great minds think alike. We find <laughs> yeah, figure we'll these things out <laughs> in our own way. Yeah. Um, I didn't write an article about it. I just put out one little tweet, but it's definitely an interesting thing to think about because it's like, first of all, when you say trust minimization to people, like that's very counterintuitive. People And it, he, like for great minds, there's like Jordan Peterson, he often talks about this book he read. I don't know which book it is, but he says, the book makes the case that trust is the ultimate natural resource. So that yeah. you, would, you would think we'd want to increase the trust in the world how do we do that? Well, trust minimization doesn't sound like the right way to do that. But there's some paradoxical thing here. It's like, the, the I like to think about it as, again, cost effectiveness. Instead of saying we're minimizing trust, you're actually minimizing the, the cost necessary to establish trust in terms of time, energy, engagement. And so obviously, if you lower the unit cost of establishing trust, then you increase the total output of trust or the total production of trust, something like that. Exactly. Because money is a representation of the value of our scarce time here on this earth. And if it's a good money, it's a, it's a good representation of it. And Bitcoin is a perfect representation of it because it's as finite as our time on this earth. And it's the first, that's a, that's a first for humanity. So, so it's the first time we had a, perfect representation of what we truly are uh, finite beings uh, uh, a small link in a long chain of uh, generations um, and how, how when you've been in um, I, I don't know if you've ever been but if you've ever been in a life-threatening situation where, where you thought you were going to die uh, or that there was a great probability that a high probability that you would die you you tend to reevaluate reevaluate your life after that, uh, and you start to value your your time more because you you get a reminder that it's limited. Uh, everyone dies, so uh, and like I said, Bitcoin is a perfect representation of that. So um, it's a bit of a stretch that that enables us to to trust each other more. But I really think it does, because when, when you have corrupt money that does not accurately represent that, then you, you engage in voluntary interactions with each other. A voluntary action and a transaction are, are the same thing. Uh, um, as long as the money is, is fair and, uh, uh, and you can trust it. So, but, but when you can't trust the money and the voluntary interaction uh, gets le gets um, corrupted by this third party leaching value from it, then that that's what creates the mistrust we have in each other. 
So, so I think what Bitcoin is doing is connecting humanity into this singular unit so that we, we our tribal instincts and Dunbar's number and all of that, we can finally, we can extend that tribe without sacrificing our own, uh, our own uh, integrity and our own um, individuality. It's the first time we've had a system that is actually able to coordinate all human beings instead of just the human beings in a specific tribe or religion or nation or whatever group. Yeah. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense to me. Um, so, you know, Bitcoin, I guess, is kind of circumventing trust in a way by saying, you know, well, again, it's always captured in that phrase, don't trust verify, but the system itself saying here's universally transparent verifiable mathematics essentially right so you just have full instead of putting your full faith and what is it full faith and credit of the u.s government i think is on the the dollar yeah. bill we're putting our also full faith in god we trust in god we trust <laughs> that's also on the dollar bill <laughs> they're trying to piggyback and hijack <laughs> yeah tr trust in god instead we trust can in god and the fed <laughs> instead yeah. we can place full faith and credit in mathematics which I don't think there's much argument about that being a bad idea. Like it's the most, no, it's the highest, it's... Re highest resolution language for reality we have. I think, um, was yeah. it Galileo, the, the, the good language of, of the universe, something like that. So, yeah. So it's not really faith. It, oh, it's, it's, uh, it's, well, it is faith though, because probabilistic uh, risk, like it's, it's an, it's an accurate risk taking like uh it it is very likely to be true <laughs> most uh, likely to be true but yeah. still any it's, system of knowledge is going to be built on top of axioms and ultimately yeah. you have faith in those axioms right even in austrian economics man yeah. must act we don't yeah, know how yeah, to refute exactly. it we don't know how to think our way out of it it seems pretty reliable but ultimately Ultimately, you're having faith in an axiom. I think that's as true of any system of knowledge. I know you don't like yeah, the word faith. I know you don't like the no. word faith, but <laughs> I don't think you can avoid it either. No, uh, okay, I can, I can, I can buy that. I, okay. I would say that uh, I'd use the word uh, 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 an accurate assumption. Uh, Fair enough. Future is shorter. Events. I'll stick with that one. Um, <laughs> trust this is semantics. Yeah, semantics. So. We get a system that circumvents trust by letting us place faith in mathematics. Other things too, thermodynamics, Darwinian self-preservation. These are all kind of components of the Bitcoin network. Yeah. Um, but trust seems to be, if I'm trying to dissect that a little bit, isn't it rooted in the belief of ongoing consensual interaction or transaction? Like if I trust someone a lot, like I trust my friend, someone I've known for years and years and years, I just have a belief that he's only going to do things that are, he won't do anything to harm me, right? If I turn my back to give him a plate of food, he's not going to punch me in the head and take my food kind of thing. Yeah. So this, there's something about consent very closely related to this trust too. I guess by Bitcoin removing the option largely for non-consensual interactions or transactions, 
that you've just you've left no other options, right? So it's like you're, it's much no. more likely people will behave and engage with you consensually because the options for non-consensual exchange are largely removed in the case like you can't inflate Bitcoin, you can't confiscate it very easily. Um, you could also say just disincentivized where sure you could try to come steal someone's Bitcoin, but if they've custodied it properly, there's not a big carrot to that enterprise. When I say carrot, no, I mean incentive and, to that enterprise. And you can't know how many Bitcoins they have. Right. So 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 the, the, the uh, a, a violent actor is always disincentivized to take the violent action rather than to provide something of value back because you can never know how much how much you could have gotten out of this person by being nice to them instead. And even uh, if you did somehow know that they had a shitload of Bitcoin, the probability that you're going to get it is very, very low. So when you're actually doing this like, you know, weighted average, what is it called? Uh, expected value calculation. Yeah. Where you're looking at the probability and the payoff and you're, you're trying to figure it out. The probability shrinks tremendously. So this is why I think we always, we often talk about in Bitcoin, the, the profitability of coercion or violence. Like Bitcoin lowers the profitability of, of violence and so if you make it, violence less profitable so. it's somewhat intuitive that we would all be more trusting well when you can't take something by force and, and you can't even know how much it is there's just no other way of extra extracting value from from the other man or woman well uh, than than providing something of value back and that's what that's where we're, we're voluntarists or libertarians or anarcho-capitalists or whatever label you want to put on it. I, I like voluntarist because I like actions to be voluntary, not uh, not you know forceful. I got schooled uh, on this one the other day, real quick. Sorry to interrupt, but I've always said that to you: voluntary yeah. versus involuntary exchange. Yeah. And I had Stefan Kinsella on the show, and he says actually, it's consensual versus non-consensual. Because technically, even when you submit to coercion, it's voluntary, right? Someone puts a gun to your head and says, give me your wallet. Yeah. It's a voluntary action that you handed him your wallet, but it wasn't yeah. consensual. And he would say, what was the other example he gave? Is it you can have a seizure. Like what's something that's actually involuntary is when you have a seizure, that's involuntary. You did not yeah. intend to do that. You can't control it. You can't stop it. Um, but yeah, so when you board the so plane with the mask on, you, you always have the option to say, fuck you, I won't do what you tell right. me and go the other way. So right. yeah, so so are we consensualists then? Yes, consensualists, <laughs> exactly. That sounds convoluted, but okay, I'll, I'll buy it for now. Yeah, but at, uh, back to a point you, you made before about everyone becoming wealthier. And this is also hard for, for Keynesians to, to, to grasp that uh, every boat rises with the tide and that uh, in a functioning economy with sound money everyone actually does get wealthier everyone who does anything gets wealthier uh, than they used to be and the more wealth you acquire like we said before the, the more altruistic you, you can you can be and that's also you can afford uh, to lose money uh, you, you can afford to uh, you can afford a lot more things so you can afford to be nicer to people and it's not it's not a coincidence that 
poorer areas of the world are often more crime-ridden than wealthier ones. Uh, so, of course, it's better for everyone if everyone has a, 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 an ability to get richer. That's, that's just very natural. And all of these movies and, and children's stories that tell you about the big bad capitalist in some, you know, Uncle Scrooge in his big pile of cash uh, being the bad guy, that, that is not really true. I mean, uh, in, in, a, in a fair economy, the wealthiest man is the man who provides most value to to his fellow to his fellow human beings that's, who save them the most time exactly which is which is should be the same thing um because money is time <laughs> that's that's it it should be time bitcoin is time yeah it's um it's really interesting so i you know on this particular point I'm blown away, frankly, that it's not more adequately discussed because I don't see any path to the process of civilization, like ongoing civilization, other than wealth accumulation. Like you have to accumulate more wealth to get, like you just said, richer yeah. societies tend to be more peaceful. <laughs> Poor societies tend to be more contentious. Why? Well, because there's a lot more economic scarcity in a poor society. People are fighting for scraps. They're short term, right? They're, you could almost say that fear. Yeah. Yeah. Aggregate wealth accumulation is correlated closely with aggregate time preference, right? Exactly. So the more wealth we have, the lower our time preference. Yeah. And, and so, but that's not talked about almost by anyone except Bitcoiners. And it really blows my mind. It's like, why, why are we talking about all these fundamental issues? Like this very practical, obvious approach is like, just create more stuff because <laughs> stuff satisfies wants. I wouldn't and say unsa stuff. unsatisfied create, wants. I typically create say more time saving. <laughs> yeah. Capital. Goods uh, yeah. Capital. Right. Yeah. And unsatisfied wants are what create the contention within a society. So you can very easily relieve the contention by just, creating more capital per unit of time exactly and uh, this uh, i think you you this ties into the 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 first chapter of my my uh, latest book the uh, the time chapter uh which is quite inspired by Monsieur Mah what's his name Monsieur Mahmoudov's book the, mm -hmm. this book will save you time if you read mm -hmm. that also about yep. bitcoin uh and how every Every tool and every technology ever invented by man uh, was invented to save someone time somewhere. So a screwdriver uh, saves you time, uh, and uh, you know an electric sc screwdriver saves you even more time. And you can do that with everything. And uh, the argument I make in the book is like even an Armani suit or a Gucci bag is trying to save someone time somewhere because. The one wearing the bag is probably trying to virtue signal to other people in the group in order to get a better job and to get a higher pay and therefore being able to to free up time by by spending money so but what people miss is like what they really want is what money can buy them and what that is is ultimately uh, a reclamation of the driver's seat of your life so you can decide of your own time 
that's what everyone really wants. <laughs> uh, uh, but most people don't see that their actions are actually hindering them from from getting exactly that. So they stay in these uh, in these jobs with fancy titles and a monthly paycheck, and they take a huge mortgage and buy a huge car and a huge house, and they spend all their lives paying off their debt and never never having any time to contemplate what life is really about. And that's the saddest part of the, of the fiat shit show because it turns everyone into this uh, lab rat, if you want. Uh, and this is this is partly why I wrote this article because I think the 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 other side of that bridge that Bitcoin provides is so different. Uh, and so, I imagine a world where almost everyone affords can afford almost everything. Uh, because the, the economy is so well oiled and the costs of production and transportation of basically every consumer good in the world has gone to zero, especially in Bitcoin terms. So everyone has access to this abundance of stuff, but, but everyone's psyche has changed from consumerism to uh, something my grandfather said, which is a, a brilliant quote that has been you know, bothering me for the last 40 years when my dad told me, I never met my grandfather, but my, my dad told me that his father told him that you can do which, that which you can do without, you own. And there is so much to unpack in that quote. So I've been thinking about it for 40 years. <laughs> that which you can do without, you own. And when you realize that, you, you realize that you don't need all this material bullshit. You can just own it anyway by not needing it and it ties into so much like if i get a parking ticket uh i i used to get angry when i got a parking ticket or, or a speeding ticket or anything thing or something like that i don't think i ever had a speeding ticket well i did in germany but that doesn't count uh, <laughs> uh but the, the 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 gut reaction is to be angry at the ticket or angry at what just happened to you oh shit i have to pay this and then you go around frustrated but then you're paying the double price for the parking ticket because it's already costing you money but now you're letting it cost you time in form of uh, in the form of like your anger and your energy being focused on this bullshit when you could just pay the goddamn thing and forget about it and go on with your life so, so I try. I constantly try to be more like that. To to not care about stuff that I cannot uh, do anything about, or or stuff that is pointless for me to try to do anything about. When I could focus on something something bigger and something more important instead. Um, and I I think that Bitcoin can actually make people become more like that over time uh, of course it won't lead to a utopia or anything like that i don't believe we will get to a perfect world or that there's an end point somewhere but that's not the point as long as the vectors are pointing in that direction we lead humanity into a a, a friendlier more loving more trust more trusting place that that's always a good thing um and yeah that which you can do without your own. I think more people should take that to heart and, and try to live that way. That's a really good one. Um, 
it's funny how some of the wisdom we receive from our parents or grandparents just keeps paying dividends over time, right? Uh, yeah. The one, I like that one a lot. I'd never heard that one before. That which you can do without you own. That's really interesting. It reminded yeah. me of one my mom used to share. Uh, I grew up in Tennessee. So this is, I guess, redneck wisdom, if you will. Uh, she used to say, stuff doesn't matter. People do. Yeah. And um, simple as that, you know, stuff that doesn't matter ultimately, like it's, it's a means to an end, but typically the, the ultimate ends for people are typically people, right? With some type of relationship or loving relationship with your family or your significant other or whatever it may be. Um, and it makes sense to me that again, if we have a sound money savings option, that it's just going to lead to less consumerist mentality. Because you're, again, you're just engaging, especially with something like Bitcoin, like you're engaging with something, I don't want to, I want to use the word eternal, but damn near everlasting for, um, at least in the scope of socioeconomics. So you, your time horizon becomes aligned with its time horizon. And all of a sudden, you know, the, the Gucci bag and trying to scurry up this little superficial social hierarchy maybe doesn't matter so much. Um, no, uh, and that that quote that like stuff doesn't matter, people do. It's it, it's a hint at what what we ultimately want with all of our actions, and that is love. We want to be loved by other people. We 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 crave. <laughs> I, I mean, some of us crave more attention than others, mm -hmm. but 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 even that, all of it is just uh, a longing for love, um, and the the. I believe that the best way to get there is to to rid yourself of your ego and of your uh, of your uh, desire for for uh, you know cheap dopamine hits, <laughs> uh, right? And like a, a search for a deeper truth somewhere. And um, I I think Bitcoin provides a a perfect lens, a damn near perfect lens for us to 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 see see the world through and see through all the bullshit. Agreed with that completely. Do you think then that, because a lot of the things we're saying here are very stoic. Yeah, yeah. I, is, I, is Bitcoin inducing stoicism through economic incentives or something like that? I think it is. And uh, I, I love stoicism. It's like the the one of my favorite philosophies or, or ways of thinking about life like and that's all about focus on the things you actually can do anything about and uh, don't don't bother with with the things you can't do anything about and back to the that which you can do without your own that that is true for people too like if if you don't need your ex-girlfriend anymore you you sort of own her <laughs> that is owning in another sense uh, yeah. of the of the word of course but but you know what I mean? It's about owning your own reality. Uh, and it, and funnily enough, it's it's not an ego thing. It's the opposite. It's like if if you can own yourself, uh, you can make yourself into whatever you want yourself to be uh, rather than be just a slave to to your instincts. And this is also back to lower time preference. It's, it's all tied to the same phenomena.
I'm reminded here, um, there's this old adage to always, I don't forget who, maybe it was Wittenstein or one of these great thinkers. They said you should always invert, right? Anything, anytime you're trying to look at a problem. So I liked it. Even if you invert this thing, that what you own, you can do without. That rings true as well. It's like you don't. That, that which you own, you can do without. It's like what again? Stuff doesn't matter. People do. They're just possessions, you know. So you don't. <laughs> Another way I've, I've thought uh, about I, this too is the difference. I don't know between... if that makes as much sense though. Like, well, uh... I'm not saying it makes as much sense, but think about it like this: that wants versus needs. Yeah, I don't think a human can even articulate needs because the fact that you can articulate it means that all your needs are met. Right, you're alive. You're breathing. You're yeah. capable of producing. Yeah, that's a harsh each. definition of needs, though. But well, um, that would be so. It's just wants at that point, though. It it is. It is the ability to articulate a quote unquote need. I think transforms it into a want because, like, all your needs are met by the very fact that you can say that you need something. So it really means you just want something. Yep. Yeah, <laughs> all I can see in front of my eyes now is a dying very thin man in a gulag prison saying can i have a glass of water <laughs> no you don't as long as he says he wants can... <laughs> it i'll give it to him <laughs> uh, well but the point i mean i guess the the overarching point here and again related to stoicism is that you don't need much just need sunshine and water and you know some food here and there um yeah. and that, that that's just what is then then again back to what can't we do without then so so imagine you're love uh, like exactly and that's why that's why i choose to travel the world and go to all these conferences and meet all these strange people and uh hang out with them because i, I can't do without that because there's so much love in a bitcoin conference as you know like it's it, love is all around you there and uh yeah i um my deepest fear is probably you know just doing what everyone else does and and getting safely into my coffin without ever having been seriously embarrassed uh i'd mu i'd much rather see where i can take this ride <laughs> so i i guess i can't do without that but it has nothing to do with lambos that's for sure right <laughs> yeah well it's interesting that at the surface, Bitcoin and its culture can appear much different than if you see it up close. Like if you just observe Bitcoin Twitter, I don't think you would understand how much love you will discover at a Bitcoin conference. No. <laughs> it's, it's not the same. Well, for an insider, it's the same. I mean, we love being on Twitter and, and, and shit posting to each other all the time as well. Like, it's, Yeah, it, but for the outsider looking in, definitely yeah, yeah. wouldn't get it. No. <laughs> so I'm going to read just a quick excerpt here. I'm, I'm in chapter one of your book. Your book, by the way, is titled Bitcoin, Everything Divided by 21 Million. Yep. Make sure that's right. Yes. Oh. Just everything divided by 21 million. No, Bitcoin, everything divided by 21 million. Oh, it is. Okay. The one you yeah, sent all, me. All my books have Bitcoin column in the title. Ah, okay. Got you. The PDF you sent me doesn't, doesn't have that on the title page, but I will take your word for it as the author. 
<laughs> yeah. Uh, okay, excerpt straight in the beginning of chapter one here. You write, those who have misunderstood the importance of the discovery of Bitcoin find it intriguing like fire, as helpful as the wheel, as convenient as electricity, and as world-changing as the internet. A remarkable shift in how we live our lives is just around the corner. A fundamental change in the way we organize ourselves, a global social paradigm shift of unprecedented proportions, a new level of civility, an awakening. This discovery is a representation of time itself. It's connected to time in ways in which we've only begun to realize the implications. It's an emergent phenomenon, and it's happening everywhere at once, an idea whose time has come. So why, um, in this book, you, maybe I'll just read the chapters. Chapters have cool one-word titles, and I'll read them in order. Chapter one is time, then you have alchemy, ownership, energy, morality, mimetics, symbiosis, violence, deflation, adoption, transition. Can you tell me a little bit about the sequencing of the chapters and what, why time first, and then where do you go from there? Oh, where, where to even start? Like this, this is my third book on Bitcoin. So, so I had a much harder time this time around to, uh, to come up with ideas. Uh, so many of the chapters are based on articles I, I wrote between, uh, writing the second book and up up until i i wrote the the third one uh, uh, but the 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 titles of the chapters and the ordering of of the chapters there there's a lot going into that i had to rearrange some sections uh the, there's a bit of personal stuff in the prelude of, about the uh, fractal encrypts uh, uh, private infinity key thing um and my Bitcoin journey so far, and that used to be in the middle of the book, uh, but then Jeff Booth and a couple of others helped me edit it and like rearrange these things. And I, I think it came out much better be because of that. So uh, so I, I can't tell, take full credit for the ordering of the book, but I wanted it to be like, uh, you, start, you sort of have to start with time because time is, uh, <laughs> what better place to start than than with time itself like uh, and yeah i ended it with uh, adoption and transition because that's that's like the end point that's where are we heading afterwards so you start you start in the past and you you end with the future and it's a journey sort of and then you find these cool words, as you say, and you 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 name your chapters that. But I uh, I don't really plan books out that much before I write them. <clears throat> I I um I try to do a sort of a stream of consciousness kind of thing, uh, and uh, I just see where the writing leads me. So I I don't really have. Um, I, I take long walks. Uh, and then I take more long walks and I think about things and I try to find an idea somewhere that is fresh enough and interesting enough to pursue. And then I start writing about it and I see where I end up uh, and I enjoy the process of, of like trying to think while I write and, and trying to see where, where is this leading and what is this chapter going to be? So it, it sort of re reveals itself to me over time. Uh, so, so, uh, it's not like I, um, 
decide the chapters first and then and then fill them with text I, I i just sort of go with the flow and hopefully the book will the texts themselves will will reveal to me in what order they're supposed to be afterwards and uh, i i got a lot out of stephen king's book on writing in that sense he, he wrote a book called on writing and uh, which is partly a biography and partly a book about writing and about the creative process. And I can deeply recommend uh, another book on creativity, namely John Cleese's book on creativity, which is just an hour long audiobook, very funny stuff and very relatable to, uh, to at least to my creative process that like you feel like you're channeling something, then you're probably doing it, doing it right. Yeah. Very cool. How much time on the topic of time, uh, how much time are you spending with one of these books? Do you give yourself a predefined deadline and then work towards it? Or do you just sit in the process until you're comfortable with the product? Uh, the, the actual writing doesn't take that much time, uh, a couple of months. Uh, but, but I don't know where the process starts and ends. Uh, it's very hard to define. Like, <laughs> I, in a way, I started writing this book when when I discovered Bitcoin, and I could go even further back than that. I mean, thinking about things is is always uh, the first thing you do when you when you partake in any creative endeavor. Like, you you are the sum of your experiences and your knowledge, and uh, you you try to get something out of that creatively so so i can't really uh, and i i don't really find it helpful to think of it the the creative process in those terms that now i'm going to do this and like um what what i do do is like i set a deadline like this this has to be a a proper book by this and this date and i set the deadline for the miami conference for this book like i want it to be done by march so we can make a cover and publish it and like so we can have everything done with the proofreading and the editing and have it out by by the conference and we managed to do that and i'm very happy about that uh, but yeah that's my process mm -hmm. and but each to his own everyone has a different creative process i think and how much uh editing revising proofreading are you i guess doing yourself and then at what point do you outsource that to other people to get feedback and how many well, rounds a, of that do you do well when i try to to write the book first and then it's it's sort of a group effort uh i had uh jeff do some edits first uh and write the foreword uh or not do the edits but but suggest the edits and then i did the edits and he had another look through and it, and uh, at the same time uh nico and mel uh, my proofreaders were, were doing the proofreading and it was really good to have two proofreaders uh with a, two different sets sets of eyes because they they saw different different things um uh, and sometimes i disagreed with them and let let whatever I had written in the first place be and sometimes you change it to something else but it's always good to have a like someone someone's opinion on it um, and I, this time around I used an app called Grammarly I don't know if you're familiar with it I've seen advertisements uh, but I haven't used it, it it's pretty good 
you pay like a monthly fee or something and um, or it's a sub subscription model i think i signed up for two years and uh, uh, you can set parameters if you want it to be informative or creative or like um, you, you can set the the language to be intellectual or slang or whatever so you set a bunch of parameters and then you just write and it suggests Oh, you should shorten this sentence. You should rearrange these sentences, and you should choose a synonym here. And uh, this is in passive form and whatever. Um, but it's a good tool. I can recommend it. I used another one called Hemingway before, but I like Grammarly a lot better. Very cool. Um, I'm asking you just because I'm same with you. I'm always trying to figure out my process. I don't know what my process is right now other than um, I found sitting with a piece of writing longer and editing it, editing it more uh, tends to make it better for me, especially the sitting with it, the sitting with the idea. Like when you're writing something, it's kind of always on your mind. And yeah. the longer I let that marinate, the more useful or valuable content gets gets added to the piece and also like getting feedback from respected others is so important you know they'll poke i can think of a time where jimmy song edited uh masters and slaves of money for me and like he pressed on a few points conceptually mm -hmm. like you know you really need to expand on this and that expansion became like one of the best parts of the essay so yeah. it's good to get good to get those other eyeballs as you said yeah, I oh. think though the, the the trap is to if you're too much of a perfectionist, you lose the creative spark, and then you get writer's block and you get nowhere. Can you relate to that? You gotta have the deadline mixed with the. It's almost like. I like to set a deadline, but it's a pretty cushy deadline. Like it's relatively <laughs> far out, so I can sit with it for a long time. All right. And um, yeah, I, if anything, but I my output is way less than yours, so. I'm yeah, probably probably further along that less how I, I it's not a competition about uh, how many words you can write it's about the quality of the writing right and you write some brilliant stuff so uh, yeah yeah but the another another thing about creativity is like uh, uh, they made a little documentary about how how they make South Park and it's called six days to air because they start writing it six days before it airs so they have like three days where they sleep in the office and they just brainstorm this thing together. And it's pretty mind blowing that you can do that that fast. And in one section of this documentary, Trey Parker says, uh, I could have spent two more months on this script and it would have become 5% better. Right. So it's simply not worth it. So if you want to get anywhere and produce stuff, uh, you have to settle for 95% perfection and not 100 because otherwise you're, you're stuck forever. And I, I found that to be very true. When, when I was doing music before, I, I spent a whole year making a very crappy overproduced album once because we just fin we just put more and more touches on everything. Is, is this a correct hi-hat sound and so on? And it, it's just, a f you don't get anywhere. And it, the, the end result is often more stale and boring than it would have been if you just have kept that creative motor going because you're learning every time you're doing so the next time you the next book you write will will be better uh, if if you had written one before then 
than than if, if it would have been your first book. I mean, you can always improve. Um, so 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 that's what I try to do. I try to I aim for ninety five percent perfection, but not more. <laughs> Easier said than done, for sure. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'll read another excerpt here from chapter one. You write. Oh, I should actually say that you mentioned earlier, this book will save you time by Masir was uh, inspirational to chapter one. Yep. And so that part of this, I, I see that in here. And he actually, I did read his book. It's funny that it's funny how our ideas get recirculated too, because in that book, he credited my, he credited me. I think he said it was my essay, Bitcoin and the tyranny of time scarcity. Mm -hmm. that influenced some of his writing in that book so it's like it's funny just to see him you know Full circle yeah the yeah. memetics keep going <laughs> around here um but you write that every tool and every technology saves someone time somewhere yeah one we touched could, on this before yeah yeah one could even argue that everything we assign value to saves us time we value things because of how much time we predict they can save us think of it this way you could either kill your time or let someone else waste it there's nothing else to do with it. You're a hunter on the prowl for time to kill. If you own your time, you get the privilege of killing it. If you let others decide what you what to do with your time for you, you allow others to waste your time. I thought that was a pretty original way to look at it. Because um, one of the things I wrestled with in that essay, Bitcoin and the Tyranny of Time Scarcity was Yes, time saving is very important for the process of valuation, right? It's like, what is this thing going to do for me? But mm -hmm. there's also this element of, you know, trying to attain leisure. And I don't know, you know, I couldn't fully figure that out. Like if you buy a lakeside cabin to sit around all summer and write books or eat food or whatever, how is that how's the valuation of that cabin how does that fit into the time savings aspect because in my mind i thought well we want most of our means to save us time towards our ends but there are certain ends that maybe we buy just to kill time as you say yeah but killing time i mean uh Killing time means different things to different people. I say we're we're hunters on the prowl for time for time to kill, and what I mean by that is like when when you are the one killing your time, then that means you're doing whatever you want with it, and that doesn't necessarily mean something unproductive. I mean, uh, when you have full control over your time, you can do whatever you want with it, and you feel no pressure to 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 you know do a certain job or, or uh, impress a certain person or whatever, but you really truly decide that this is what I want to spend my time on right now. Uh, for me, that often is, you know, writing or doing something creative or having this conversation. This is, this is, uh, I mean, I don't get paid for doing this, but I sure as hell like doing it. Uh, and so, so I, and if I can provide others with, some sort form of value by while doing something that I love to do. Why why wouldn't I do that? I mean, and that's where uh, I feel very lucky to be able to do something I love for a living now. 
And something I truly love, I never feel forced to do anything Bitcoin related. Not really. I feel like everything I do in Bitcoin, I do for my own enjoyment first and foremost. So, so I am killing my time by doing something that apparently has value to other people because they seem to like what I do. And I, I, uh, I think you, you know what I'm talking about. And I think you had a similar journey to say the least. I mean, you had a, a more a steep journey than I had maybe, but, but you, I think you know what I'm talking about here. You, you wouldn't do this if you didn't love to do it. No, I think it's one of the things in my life I'm most grateful for is having found my life's work, right? Like I could do this. I can do this forever. I'm, I love it. I would do it if money were no object. I get to add value to people's lives and um, even capture some of that value for my family in the process. Like there's a lot of people that would really want to be in that situation you know not necessarily with bitcoin per se but whatever their thing is whatever they're you know inclined or, or interested in to make that their profession like that's a very feels like a high achievement in life and i'm yeah very that's, grateful that's like maslow's hierarchy of needs that's the like the ultimate step on top of everything and uh, i'm very grateful for for being able to do this i just uh i feel very privileged and lucky being able to, to, to do these things. And yeah, there's, there's nothing more to it than that. It's just to enjoy the ride and do it. Yeah. Now I'd like to tell you about a great new Bitcoin show on the scene that you've got to check out. Brought to you by Swan Studios and Bitcoin Magazine, this show is Hard Money with Natalie Brunel. Natalie is an Emmy-nominated journalist bringing unparalleled experience to the Bitcoin media scene. And personally, Natalie is one of my favorite voices in the Bitcoin space. Each week on Hard Money, you'll get the top headlines of the week with analysis you won't find anywhere else. Hard-hitting interviews with amazing guests like myself and other top minds in the Bitcoin space. And the show will take you directly into the lives being changed by Bitcoin all over the world. Check out Hard Money at swan.com backslash hard money. Today, I want to tell you about our sponsor, CrowdHealth. So how does health insurance work? You send an egregious amount of money to an insurance company. They hold it in a pool of depreciating fiat currency. Then when you have a large health event, you have to pay them even more via your deductible. And then you hope they will cover your bill. And in fact, one in six bills are denied by healthcare.gov plans. It's time to take control of your own healthcare bills. I'd like to introduce you to CrowdHealth. It's a decentralization of healthcare using Bitcoin as an alternative to health insurance. Instead of sending fiat currency to a big corporation, you send that money to an account controlled by you, a portion of which is converted into Bitcoin. Then if you have a big health event, you have a community of Bitcoiners that will use the money in their accounts to help you out. To get more details, go to joincrowdhealth.com backslash breedlove, where you can find the promo code for $99 a month for six months. I'll read another excerpt here that I liked in chapter one. You wrote, the very definition of economics is the management of scarce resources. Now imagine that you knew that you would live forever, that you were both immortal and indestructible. Imagine that you wouldn't even need to eat. 
In this hypothetical case, you wouldn't need to act ever. You could always wait until tomorrow. Postpone everything indefinitely, forever. In such a reality, nothing would be of value to you. With unlimited time on your hands, you wouldn't need to value anything. If time were abundant, everything else would become abundant too. We attach value to goods and services because of the scarcity of human time. So this is interesting too, that the connection between temporality and value yeah. um, could, I've thought about this too, that because low time preference, high time preference, very confusing for a lot of people. I thought maybe you could say the same thing in reverse. Maybe, I'm not sure. A high value preference versus a low value preference. Yep. Right. If you're naked, afraid, starving in the jungle, you probably have a pretty low value preference, right? You'll yeah. So beg, what, do, what do they say? Lie, cheat, and steal <laughs> to get the next meal. So you, yeah. You'd, you'd be willing, you not willing necessarily. You'd be incentivized to behave that way, to act that way, let's say. Whereas in the opposite case, you know, you're wealthy, you're warm, you're safe, you've got plenty of food. Um, you're much more likely at least to, you have more of an opportunity to engage with higher moral values, right? To be honest, to be uh, gregarious, embrace justice, all of these things. So um, what do you, I mean, how do you, I would just like to hear your thoughts on that, on time preference and value preference. Are they reflections of one another? Yes, I think they are. And I think that that quotes and everything, it, it, uh, that, that is the basics of, of praxeology and the, the, the science of human action. Uh, and uh, I recently read a book by Hoppe called uh, The um, Economic Theory and the Austrian Method, I think is the title. Oh, okay. Very good book about just the methodology of praxeology and like how deductive reasoning is superior to every other form of science uh, it, b because of its rigorosity and uh, you can't really uh, like the example uh, I think I've heard you use this example that uh, you can argue against you owning your own uh, body but in doing so you prove <laughs> you right. prove yourself wrong because you need to use your vocal cords and your tongue and your lips you know and your lungs in order to do that so Yes, yes. Uh, but yeah I, I i think like uh, and one of the, the 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 axioms of praxeology is that economics can only be applicable to 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 scarce goods but like everything without a price is not uh it's not some something that should be studied in economics economics is the study of uh, stuff that has a price and in order for them to get a price they need to be scarce uh, so only scarce things have a price and that that ties into to uh, the scarcity of our lives uh, and the, the times uh, are, are scarce time because as I said in that other quote that if you could live forever and you were indestructible you could always postpone everything so nothing else would have value to you either so, so uh, it's not only the good that has to be scarce, but but your life, uh, your time on this earth has to be scarce too. Otherwise, the goods aren't really scarce. 
because the elements don't really go away. Uh, you could always acquire them at a later point and, and so on. So And, and so this I would think... go, that would go hand in hand because um, again, to define scarcity as where demand exceeds supply, mm -hmm. right? You wouldn't have, if you had all these immortal non-actors, I guess you could call them, there'd be no demand, right? So things wouldn't be scarce. But yeah. there wouldn't be there wouldn't be sufficient demand that exceeded supply because everyone just has this forever orientation i guess exactly. you don't need to eat uh, don't need to breathe don't need to do it, anything it's a hypothetical thing of course and nobody nobody could ever be indestructible or immortal but i think it's it provides you with an intellectual tool for thinking about these things uh and it sort of ties into uh, uh, you're going to love this, but I, I made a, a slightly provocative tweet uh, the other day. Uh, a belief in God is a belief in central planning. <laughs> hmm. uh, and um, maybe that tweet wasn't that intelligent, but but some of the conversations around it became very intelligent because the, the next thing that I that came to mind was like, why would an omnipotent being do anything ever if 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 it you know if it was omnipotent it would encompass absolutely everything and know absolutely everything and be able to do absolutely everything and it would live forever and be indestructible so why would that being be incentivized to do anything at all is there a praxeological like does praxeology not apply to a being like that or is there something here, Robert? I know you think about these things a lot. So, oh like... yeah, I would. Um, there's a lot of. I would start here. The um, I would love for you to read this book. Actually, I think it would challenge a lot of your perspectives. Um, book is titled Theophany, by Eric Pearl. Theophany. Theophany. T h e o p h a n y, and theophany. it is a a neoplatonic description of god okay. and um, it's interesting because it's not religious it's not theological actually the word theophany means uh i think the visible manifestation of god okay but the description of god in this the neoplatonic tradition it's a it's a rigorous philosophical deduction it's not guy in the sky let's all worship him it's uh, it's a it's the it's almost like the number zero in a way that we use this word god to as a representation for that which is beyond words which is beyond being itself actually and that's yeah. one of the the key points that the author makes and it's not just the, the author is referencing the works of dionysus um other ancient philosophers so it's really really good but one of the key points to not get into that rabbit hole is God is beyond being. So what you're, the question you're posing there, which is what would yep. an omnipotent being do praxeologically is not applicable because God is beyond being. So you can't ask a question about, okay, you can't but, compress but, God into being basically. Okay. <laughs> but but that makes the word pointless because if it's outside is, the, is realm the number of zero being, is the number zero pointless it's a category for uh, no categories 
Well, it's it's a representation of nothing. As is the word God, something beyond being. But I've never heard anyone reference God as nothing. But so so and and I I'm sure this book is great about the subject. Uh, are you? Uh, it, is the author religious? Do you know that? I don't know, actually. Okay. Um, yeah, I'd love to read it because I love his philosophical discussions about it. Yeah, but, it was but, recommended to me by John Verveke, who you probably know. Yeah, yeah, I saw yeah. the Verveke series. I really yeah. liked it. So yeah. I did another series with Verveke, but it's this is called the Platonic Philosophy series. We haven't released it yet, but it goes okay. into this. He he recommended three books. It was really we're just gonna we only talked about one book in the series, but it veered into these other books, um, yeah. and I you know because yeah let, let, let me try to, to explain myself a bit more here about that question because this is not a question about like um what god is or anything it's just it's just a, a couple of like paradoxical things that i don't think anyone has brought up before in the debate of this or that uh so so it's just a a, a thought experiment because um uh, if a if a uh uh, a, a deity is interfering with reality in one way or another. The, uh, they must have had uh, a preceding value judgment in their whatever mind they have in order to do that, because you don't. Otherwise, it doesn't have free will. So otherwise, it's not a deliberate action. So, so if you have a, a being that is actually doing any, anything with reality, uh, manipulating reality in one way or another, that that entity must be uh, must have an incentive to do so, or must have had a, a maybe not an incentive, but it must have something that uh, makes it act, or a, a, a thought, or a, a value judgment. So why does it value things if it's not mortal itself? Do you, do you see where I'm getting at here? Because as soon as you take that being out of that, which are like those um, interpretations of religion, I like a lot more, like maybe God started something and then uh, he has never meddled with anything ever after, just set the basic equations. Uh, but then again, what would be this incentive to set those equations? And that's why I can't see, because like, uh, if he's an actor and if it's a creator, it's by definition an actor, because the, art, the, the act of creating is a deliberate action. So you can't really take it out of praxeology. Do you see where I'm getting at? This is turning into the God debate <laughs> after all anyway, well, isn't it? It's, but, so... <laughs> Again, if we're coming through the Neoplatonic lens, and it, this, the problem with this discussion is how much I don't think very few people in this world have the same idea of God. When we invoke the word God, it seems like everyone in the world has their own little version of whatever that word means to them. So, yes, it's be, because we're inherently this is why I had talking such, about such a problem with it. This yes. is why I have such a huge problem with it, because if everyone has their own definition, then the word is meaningless. Well, it's almost like a mirror. You know, it's like everyone has their own definition of Bitcoin, money and all these other things, too. So you can't just dispense with it. You can't just say, oh, we don't 
You got you got to pick a word. You got to put a word in that place. So never pick a word for what? <laughs> for action what, itself. Exactly. It's it's um. So what you were saying there? Let's start here. Yeah. The Neoplatonic tradition. First of all, it's not just God they're talking about. They also call it the One. This is okay. also goodness in the Platonic sense, like goodness as such. Is but, it is the word creator in there? No. No. So it has nothing to do not with a the deity, creation of the universe. Not a deity, not a being, okay. not a creator, not an organism, not an oh. entity. It's okay. transcendent. You're trying to describe, when, again, when we're using words like this, it's like trying to describe a sphere in Flatland. If you've ever read that book, right? The yeah, book yeah, Flatland yeah. is the two-dimensional yeah. world. Like they don't, You can't describe a sphere within the confines of the contextual confines of Flatland. Right? That's what we're doing when we invoke the word like God. It's higher dimensionality. Something like that. Yeah, so we have to we're be careful. To imagine something un unimaginable, basically. Something like that, or what? I mean, I think these are the commonality between, you know, Bitcoin, zero, the one, whatever. Like these are windows into the void. This transcendent, the domain. I think we see when we get to the edge of quantum theory, right? You you encounter that probabilistic domain that's undefinable. Logic doesn't work. Numbers don't work um well probabilistics work well it works but you can't get a grasp of it. no you i can't know. get a it, full resolution picture of the reality right you, no, can't get, a, you can't get speed and trajectory simultaneously or whatever it is direction and speed simultaneously things like that so yeah, let me just finish this thought okay, so sure. we have to be careful and i think where a lot of atheists tend to think other people think it's guy in the sky, right? We're all anthropomorphizing yeah, this imaginary oh, being. Yeah. I'll but, get back to that later. But yeah. it's, I don't think everyone does. Maybe a lot of people do, but obviously the roots of it are not that at all, for sure. And so in that book, again, using words to describe that, which is ineffable. So everything I'm going to say doesn't, it's not, the map is not the territory, right? They describe God as the act of production, they describe God as the overflow of um, almost like you know, we have emergent properties. You know, I'm sure you've mm -hmm. read and studied a lot about that. Yeah, I love the, emergent properties. The That's thing part becomes, of why I, I don't buy the religious things. Well, so the thing <laughs> becomes more than the sum of its parts or the interactions of those parts. So, right, there's something there yeah. that's occurring. They call it overflow yeah. in this book. Mm -hmm. um, and so God is simultaneously the ground of all being. So every phenomenon that you see, all beings are somehow animated by this ineffable force, but it's also transcendent of it. So it's, it's a relationship between that which is relative, all being is relative, all our perceptions are relative, and that which is absolute, which is infinite, unchanging, beyond being. But yeah. uh, the other interesting, interesting thing here is to say that the absolute is transcendent of relativity doesn't mean that they're opposites. No. The absolute can... simultaneously transcends relativity, but also includes relativity, which really blew my fucking mind. I'm still thinking yeah, about that's, it. Yeah, that's weird. But but then again, we can't really prove that infinity exists or not either. So, so like, l let me... You sort of tried to define the word God here and sort of because of my request for you to do so. But uh, mm. uh, but let me define my my um, the, the word, how I interpret the word atheist. And the, to me, a, my atheism and the way I'm an atheist is just that I don't buy 
the religious stories I've been told so far. I don't believe in any of the stories about deities or creators uh, or omnipotent beings I've heard so far. I don't buy any of them. But that's the only thing it says. It says nothing about my other beliefs or my beliefs in evolution or the Big Bang or everything else that... Because immediately when you say you're an atheist, you get labeled with all of these other things that may or may not be true and may or may not be uh, like, I could, I could list what I do believe in and what I don't believe in, but the very word, my point is that the word atheist tells you nothing about my other beliefs. It tell, the only thing it tells you about is my disbelief in a certain set of beliefs. So it's not a belief in itself, not, not as I define the world, the word. And this is also how, how Richard Dawkins defines the word in, in the God delusion, if I remember it correctly. Yeah, so this is, um, we'd have to do this. And then we should just read the book together and then have, like, talk about it or read what I'll read your book too, and we can work our way through it. Cause I think it's a really interesting topic, but I don't know. I've been yeah. talking to another guy, Yaron Brook, who's the head of the Ayn Rand Institute. And he's mm -hmm. also pretty uh, anti-Christian, anti-religion overall. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I just don't, you know, he's like, all right, here's Ayn Rand, You've written all this great stuff. It's the answer to many problems in the world. Yeah. But you're also now, you now need to go convince all of these people that have a relationship with whatever religion or wisdom tradition, typically Christianity, you have to convince them to throw all of that away and yeah. jump on the Ayn Rand bandwagon to get his, in, in his like utopia, not utopia, he thinks the world would be better served if we all embraced Ayn Rand and dispensed with the Bible. But there's yeah, this- Yeah, I, I, I agree 50% of that. I think there's the this element of impossibility <laughs> to that where it's like, okay, yeah, maybe you're right, but we could never actually know. And there's this other element of, well, Ayn Rand was able to like get to this place of leisure in life and write these books and explore these big ideas because of the Industrial Revolution, mm -hmm. which was because of the Pro Protestant Reformation, which was because of this. And now when I said that to him, he's like, well, I think we would have had the Industrial Revolution 2000 years earlier. Had we I thought the Prote Protestant Revolution was like the B-cash of Christianity. And that <laughs> well, it's, they, a soft, it's a hard fork, right? It's where delayed gratification came from, though. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's really. Where I mean, it's where we got that. It was no, like where, but no, I, I you can't say that. Like delayed gratification preceded uh, Protestantism. No, by here's what I want to say like about it: apes is... have like other primates do delayed gratification. Here's the point it's I want just, to make about it. It became the okay. central guiding principle of their community, right? It was. It was savings, basically. Work hard, don't spend. Like that spirit is what yeah. bled into the Industrial Revolution. What, what I have a problem with is knowing it, whether Christianity uh, or any other religion, for that matter, was the, 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 the cause of it, uh, so that it happened because of, of the religion or that it happened despite the religion. Because you, yeah. you can make such claims about Galileo, for instance, who, who noticed the, the moons around Jupiter and, uh, you know, the, 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 uh, the sun revolving around the earth and uh, uh, no, the other way around, of course, the earth revolving around the sun uh, and being harassed by the church for it 
so much and his his colleague bruno was even burnt on a stake i believe uh if i remember this story correctly but all, all sorts of so, so so that's a definite instance of where where the church or the the organized religion at that time hindered human progress a lot so so i think there are stories of where where it hindered human progress and there are stories of whether it where it helped human progress uh, but it's very hard to say that it was a net good or a net bad in that sense uh, because uh, the cause and effect are like correlation is not causation but i hate i know that safe hates that expression but in this case i think it's very hard to say which one spawned the other well uh, you know <laughs> causation in general is very difficult to untangle in complex systems right the arrows of causality absolutely necessarily traceable at all so yeah um i like that you bring that up the earth revolving around the sun though because this was mentioned peterson recently did an interview with dawkins i don't know if you saw that one uh, yeah i saw the latest one and i i like the recent conversations better because it seems that peterson has matured quite a bit and he's more of an interviewer than than a than a thinker now and i like that aspect of him yeah. I, I liked uh, i lo loved his even interview with ross stevens the the physicist if you saw that i haven't seen that one i don't think um, but one of the things that Dawkins said during that interview to Peterson, uh, they were debating over, I think, objective and subjective mm -hmm. reality. And Dawkins said, it is an objective fact that the earth revolves around the sun. And sounds pretty okay, right? At face value, that's how... That's what most of our worldviews are based on. But it's not really true. It's not true around the galaxy also. It's well, <laughs> there's that, but there's also the earth doesn't revolve around the sun. The sun doesn't um, revolve around the earth. No, they uh, both you, revolve around the berry center. And the berry yeah. center is just this abstract concept, which is the yeah, center yeah. of gravity between the earth and between the sun. It's very close to the center of the sun because the sun is massive. Yeah, yeah. Very center between Jupiter and the sun is slightly closer to Jupiter because yeah. Jupiter is slightly more massive uh, or higher proportion of mass relative to the sun's mass. And so it's, you get to this Verveke term, which I love. Mm -hmm. There's mm -hmm. subject and object is not quite right objective right he calls it transjective yeah transjective that's yeah weird. so it's something yeah. between subject and object another yeah, I love that example too. would be adaptivity right mm -hmm. where is adaptivity it's not the or it's not in the organism because the organisms are getting fit to the environment it's not just in the environment because the organism is making choices in that yeah, environment yeah. so it's the relationship between organism and environment and it seems yeah. to me like that's what reality is reality's you know, relational, it's transjective. We, yeah, and, um, we try to summarize it or, or decomplexify it perhaps into subject object. Mm -hmm. But to do that, those are all stories. Those are all stories we're living in. And so when I, when I look at religion, I'm like, these were our early attempts at creating stories to live inside. And now we're getting better and better and better. But to cut mm -hmm. off the roots would be, it'd be like, being in Bitcoin and you're like, you know what? Those first five years of transactions, just fucking scrape them, get rid of them. Let's just start here and move but forward. I don't, I don't think anyone wants to do that. I, I think that like, I don't think there's like any of the 
any serious person wants to erase history ever like so so we can remember the stories and we can share we can appreciate them but that doesn't necessarily mean that we believe in them anymore that that you you can do both and and to the point about when Dawkins uses the phrase that's an object objective reality uh, I mean, he, I think he throws around that term a bit too easily because you can even go further than that and go down to quantum mechanics. And then you see that, you know, gravity itself might not exist in the way we think it does. And uh, oh, there's there's no unifying theory about the universe and all of that. Uh, the Ross Stevens interview was interesting because he sort of, re because I've heard a lot of these conversations uh, your conversation with Verveke is one of them where uh, it's very popular in, in Bitcoin, among Bitcoiners to have this, the mind creates everything and it's all subjective to have that viewpoint. But Stevens makes sort of a reclamation of the objective reality that the, the tree really makes a sound when it falls in the forest. Uh, um, and he says that the, 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 the Big Bang could have happened and the universe can expand forever and ever until there's just this black void. But what's left in that black void are photons. And the curious thing about photons is that they have no uh, regard for, for size. So a photo, to photons, uh, the size of something does not matter <laughs> uh, because the, these particles behave in such different ways. So you can imagine another big bang happening from a photon uh, because the photon has no concept of uh, of of size or time transcends so all the dimensions so, yeah. so 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 objective reality can be pretty weird too without this you know uh, observer um, creating everything theory and you know i personally have a have a gut feeling that the quantum mechanics and the probabilistic nature of the of the the the, the smallest units have something to do with consciousness that 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 is connected to why we at least per perceive that we have free will and, and and such things and that we can actually um and i think we probably can uh, influence our own reality a lot more than we intuitively think we can. If we just set our minds to doing something, we can make things happen and it's more powerful than we think. I, I buy into all that and I think there are good scientific explanations for it. So uh, I find the discussion about objectivism and subjectivism very, very interesting. And uh, uh, I think we have a lot to learn, both of us and every other Bitcoiner as well, from from listening to both sides of this argument, because there's a very good case to be made for the, the tree actually making a sound falling in the forest, uh, even if there's no observer there. Hmm. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting to me that just engaging with an asset that represents a really deep truth right an unchangeable indisputable reality right with the, the bitcoin time chain yeah you can have opinions about it and all of that but you can't argue or contort its transaction history it's something it's like an independent reality right it's an absolute because, because it's because it's the the map that defines the territory which Gigi put so well like uh, it's the first time in history that the map defines the territory so we define truth but 
by looking at what was in the time chain. Mm -hmm. So, so you, you can't say it's an objective truth. It's an agreement between people mm -hmm. on a fixed set of rules for defining truth. Yes. So, so, so it's, it's an emergent truth, if you will, or like, uh, we, we have decided that is truthful and therefore it becomes truthful. Uh, and that's so, so weird. And so, uh, yeah, that's why we keep doing these, these and, things and keep talking about it. And even that is, feels like slightly inadequate because it's not like we, when we say we decided. It's, no, no, we agree on a fixed set of rules. Uh, yeah, you, it's you can, pulling people into it. They're like even people that don't want anything to do with Bitcoin, right? They get kind of pulled into it with its, what you know, the incentives, yeah, whatever it may it's be. Like, so it's you, almost you like an independent... I know we've talked about this a lot too, but it's an independent form of life. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I describe it as the symbiosis chapter of the book is about it being a symbiotic life form. And it's a bit tacky, but it's about references to the Venom movies and so on. But, uh, but back to the point about uh, the, the truth inherent in the, in the time chain, I, I say that like, uh, I like the analogy of, of the rules of chess uh, I mean, everyone can have their own opinion about the rules of chess, but you can only play the game if with you can only have access to all this to this great network of chess players if you play the correct rules. Of course, you can fork chess and remove the the knights or whatever, uh, but then you're playing another game, and you won't find as many other players around the world to play the game with, and even even the someone in charge of some large chess institution can decide to change the rules but there will probably not be a consensus around the world to actually do that so so most people will still be playing the old rules of chess and bitcoin is a lot like that you can you can use a shitcoin and you can play with some other people but that won't give you the benefits of playing the real game the the game that has the largest network effect and the the consensus of around what it is so uh, you can play this game but you have to play by the rules and if you do you can reap all the rewards and live a more fulfilling life for doing so yeah and that's I, that's the truth it produces i like that analogy a lot too anybody can fork the rules of chess but nobody else is going to play with you right it's the same thing with bitcoin or, or very few people very few <laughs> like, people right yeah, yeah. I imagine Craig Wright and, and Roger Veer playing some, some some chess with only pawns or no, they're playing on a 64 by 64 uh, squared uh, <laughs> chessboard, of course. Much bigger board. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so another, and this is so interesting to you that um, I want to talk about one thing, the line though, and I know that you've talked about this in some of your older books. The line between living and non-living. Humans yeah. have no well, humans have no fucking idea where that line is, as far as I can tell. No, and, and that's so, that, and so it that, leads yeah. me to believe that okay, if we can't figure out what's living, what's non-living, we don't know where to draw this line. Well, then everything's either living or everything's not living. Maybe. What do you think about that? Well, as I say in the beginning of this book, is like we are a species that are very fond of. Uh, categorizing things and putting them into neat little boxes like this is this is life this is death this is a woman <laughs> and mm -hmm. we, we redefine those boxes um, 
over time and and everyone has a slight slightly different definition of some words some some are easier to define some are harder to define i mean it's quite easy to define uh, pythagoras the theorem uh, <laughs> um, and uh, but the definition of life is it's it's life is extremely hard to define because there are so many variants of it and there's no real clear distinction between life and death or a living thing and a dead thing um, there are these uh, amoeba that can um and small micro microscopic animals that can uh, what's it called the bear the the, the bear like uh, creature that it's really really small uh, that that can die for like five years and then wake up again never heard of <laughs> that one so, so it's an inanimate object for five years and then uh, all of a sudden it comes springs to life again and nobody knows why so so there are these strange things and if you look up the wikipedia definition of of uh, life not even that is like, even the Wikipedia says that there's no consensus among scientists uh, uh, around the definition of this word. So, and it, in that sense, it makes a lot, it, it makes it a lot easier to argue that Bitcoin actually is a new life form uh, that is in a symbiotic relationship with, with us and with our brains, uh, especially sen since your Bitcoins can effectively die of course, you can you can you can guess and guess for millions of years until you find that private key again. But if it's lost, for all for all practical purposes, that private key is dead when it's lost. So, uh, and I I find it very very fascinating. And the 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 thought experiment in in this book is like imagine Hal Finney. You know that Hal Finney cryo froze his head when he died, right? So, so half in his head is in a tank somewhere in ice. Imagine that before he died, he me memorized the private key. There were no seed phrases uh, back then when, when, when Hal died, uh, unfortunately. So it would be hard for him to memorize it, but he could have memorized uh, a, a string of 30 numbers between zero and F. <laughs> he, he could have memorized an entire private key. And imagine, Imagine we, we discovered the technology to resurrect cryo-frozen heads like 400 years from now. And he wakes up and he signs a transaction. <laughs> and Satoshi's coins move. <laughs> like just, just the thought of that is, is, is beyond mind-blowing to me. Like what is that? What, where's the line between information and data? And uh, where's the line between knowing and owning? Where's the line between the memory and uh, something tangible? Uh, like, there are so many things to unpack there. <laughs> yeah, it's, and that's where I, I mean, my intuition takes me towards it's all alive, because it doesn't seem like it's all dead. So the best definition I've heard for life, which is not a great one, admittedly, but um, I like it because it kind of has a physics component and that physics is pretty much all we got in terms of, you know, really describing reality and not mm. all we've got, one of the most important tools we've got. Yeah. And it is that life is an open system which imports energy and exports entropy. Yeah. 
and that's in you know to the whole human thing of converting chaos into order and uh there's the gk chesterton quote a dead thing can go with the stream only a living thing can swim against it yeah so this idea of of acting right so having ends yeah. like identifying means to attain ends and acting purposefully seems so to be the, part and parcel to life uh, uh, another interesting aspect of entropy is that without entropy we couldn't have free will because if there was no entropy the universe would be de deterministic right. by definition so it will all it would all have been pre-planned yes and so so free will cannot exist in a deterministic universe right so there has to be entropy which means there has to be chaos which means that we won't ever figure out everything <laughs> and yeah also mind-blowing and entropy i intuition also takes me here that this is word is so key so we need to reconcile entropy to our existing worldviews better in my opinion because it too seems to be transjective, perhaps, that there's the entropy of uncertainty, right? Like I might not know uh, the contents of an environment, for instance, if the lights are off, right? That means that environment is very entropic to me. And there's also the entropy of like pure thermodynamics, where it's mm -hmm. actually describing like a, a quantifiable measurement of the disorderliness in a system. Yeah. Well, those are both entropy. There's a, a subjective and an objective version of entropy. Yeah. And they both exist. Uh, if, the, if it's neither subject nor object, then perhaps it too is related. You know, it's but transjective uh, somehow. It's, it's one of those words where autistic physicists get really angry when you throw them around too much. And you talk about entropy being something else than this measurable thing. And it's the same thing with the bitcoin is energy debates many people get really upset when we say that bitcoin is energy because it's not really energy in the physics sense but we we sort of have to use some words to describe this thing and maybe energy is the it's not a perfect metaphor but it might be a good good enough metaphor and why shouldn't we use it if it was um I'm unsure if it is or not, uh, but but I th I still think like every word surrounding Bitcoin, every metaphor in Bitcoin is is slightly off. There, yeah. And there there can be no perfection in describing Bitcoin because it's an entirely new thing. So we can't really describe it. We can't describe what it does to our heads. We can't uh, describe what it does to our even even the word wallets and like many people had talked about this before me like blockchain is the wrong word and time chain is slightly wrong too so i'm trying to introduce clock chain which has a nicer ring to it um, but um, all of them are wrong and wallet is definitely wrong address is wrong um, you know sending receiving those are all wrong um, but what better words could we use uh this is a really key point and it's something i think about a lot and something i hope to incorporate in my book itself that and you could compress this whole notion into i think terence mckenna said this and this sounds extreme but bear with me all language is a lie yep right it's we're we're 
we're immersed in symbols like we're throwing these words back and forth like we're both trying to map reality right trying to think about it and reflect upon it share but everything we're sharing and all the reflections our perceptions themselves yep. are symbolic right you're not seeing we know we only see five percent of the visible light spectrum so what does that mean we're blocking out or we're filtering out the other 95 percent that means what we see is literally just symbolic of what is and if you go down the rabbit hole of don hoffman's work the case against reality that goes even deeper where he says all perceptions are a biological interface. This is just a computer interface that we're seeing through. And um, so that, I mean, if that doesn't make your head spin, I don't know what will. It's like you're, we're living in symbols, which, and this, the, I'll tell you what, at the end of that book, Theophany goes into this too, that a symbol is really profound in that it simultaneously conceals reality to some extent, right? As the Taoist said, the finger pointing at the moon is not the moon. All these no. words and symbols we use are just pointers to the reality, but it's not the reality itself. So the symbol is concealing reality, but when you use them, and especially relative to one another, like in dialogue, right? We're putting words in succession. They reveal more of reality. We actually dig deeper into reality and we find things like E equals MC squared. Like, what is that? Yeah. It's not or, anywhere. It's not anything. It's some kind of like, you know, form. It's a platonic form of some kind that helps us describe reality in higher resolution. Them. But it's done that by concealing so much of reality. So it's a real, yeah. real trip. Um, and in that way, I think dealing with Bitcoin is like, obviously, Bitcoin is an absolute, right? Which is another way that the Neoplatonic tradition describes the one and God and goodness. It's absolute. So we're just throwing these analogies at it. None of them can be perfect because it's absolute, right? It's beyond description in some way. And so not beyond description, but it cannot be fully disclosed in symbol, right? You cannot explain it perfectly. So what do we do? We end up falling down the rabbit hole and beating all these analogies to death, calling yeah. Bitcoin digital energy and all. And, I think a lot of them make sense. Again, they help us conceptualize it better, but they do that by concealing reality, which is really paradoxical yet interesting. Yeah, it's like the don't trust verify makes trust easier thing. Uh, and to tie back to that and to the beginning of the conversation, there was something I, I, I wanted to, to bring up, but, but I forgot to. Uh, and that is, oh, it keeps slipping my mind all the time. But yeah, um, I realized uh, earlier today during a, a Twitter spaces that, or, or maybe yesterday that I could have done this entire, uh, and maybe I have, by the way, I could have done my entire Bitcoin career, writing these books, going to these conferences, meeting all these people. Uh, I could have done that with ever interacting with Bitcoin at all, at any point in time. Uh, it, it, Bitcoin, the protocol, and Bitcoin, like the, the computer program surrounding it, could have had no part in that. I could have done this entire journey without ever touching what we define as Bitcoin. And I would call that using Bitcoin anyway. Because when we're talking about Bitcoin, we're using Bitcoin. We're, we're, we're using Bitcoin, the word, which is 
just as much a part of Bitcoin as Bitcoin the protocol. <laughs> but we're using the word uh, to exchange information with each other to find this deeper reality. And I mean, you, you generate YouTube views with it. Uh, I generate uh, a larger audience by being on your channel and all that. So we can derive value from it and use Bitcoin to enrich ourselves, if, if you want to put it that way, and go down that rabbit hole and uh, talk about incentives and so on, without ever touching the actual program. <laughs> and this is what I find so immensely fascinating about it, that Bitcoin, the, the word, the idea, the, the coffee mug, the t-shirt, the whatever, they're all parts of the same phenomenon. So by doing this and by talking about it, we might convince someone else to, to buy and hodl Bitcoin and yet another person and so on. And uh, over the long run, the price goes up because of that. So we're increasing the power, the, the, we're indirectly increasing the purchasing power. That's at least that's what we hope we're doing. Uh, the, we can increase the, the, the buying power of Bitcoin without ever touching a computer or a phone or like i can sit here i'm not touching the computer now but i obviously had to touch it to start the program and everything but what i'm getting at is that bitcoin the discussion is just as much a part of bitcoin as as the as the protocol is um so so bitcoin is everything bitcoin is even peter schiff uh, disrespecting it that that's part of the price mechanism <laughs> that's mm -hmm. part of the supply and demand of bitcoin because it it peter shifts rants about bitcoin and it being bad and him being you know debunked all the time and being proven wrong over and over again it, it's part of what creates demand in in the minds of other people so so everything is bitcoin <laughs> Everything divided by 21 million. <laughs> like, uh, I, I literally mean that. Like, it, it's everywhere. And it, it will, at some point, it would just eat bigger and bigger chunks of the world and people would realize how powerful this tool is and that it can be used for so much more than just monetary transactions. It, it can be used for finding actual value in life. Uh, and actual truths in, in, in conversation. And yeah, I, I just think it's so beautiful and so underrated still. That's a really uh, fascinating perspective. And one I can identify with because I now, especially very little interactions with Bitcoin, right? I have Yeah, we don't have time for it. We talk well, I have, about it I have, all the time. I have, I have uh, <laughs> automatic daily buys right automatic withdrawal to cold storage so I never mm -hmm. touch that it's just set it and forget it i occasionally do one-time buys like I, i'll sit on some dollars that are coming into the business and when the price mm -hmm. dips i might do a big one-time buy that's just an email i'm just emailing uh, my otc desk saying hey buy this much bitcoin mm -hmm. and then that all goes to cold storage i never i try to never do anything with it like sometimes you might move Bitcoin to pay some of your vendors or whatever if they want it in Bitcoin, but I don't engage with the protocol much at all. Um, yet it 
clearly Bitcoin is something very central to my life. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and it's, I'm reminded here again, the way you're describing this, like all language even being part of Bitcoin to some extent that it sounds to me like, you know, what else are we using without using or, or using the word to describe the undescribable or getting some benefit from without ever touching it, you know, the ground of all being yet transcendent to all being. This is where I think that the connections between, again, the traditional word God, like tracing it all the way back yep. to the beginning and Bitcoin, there's a lot of overlap there because I, I don't know what it is. My, my, my guess would be that the absoluteness of Bitcoin at least participates or shares in this absolute principle we've assigned the word God. Yep. And it's, you could say almost we have maybe created, like perhaps Bitcoin is a platonic good or the one of money itself. You know, like we have yeah. cre we've created an absolute. Basically, we've never had an absolute. There's never been a human absolute of any kind whatsoever. No. You could say That's zero is like sort of an, an absolute and it's contained within its own mathematical framework, but it's not an absolute that actually, I mean, it does move the world. It's moved the world a lot, as I wrote about, and I'm sure you read in that piece. Yeah, yeah. Bitcoin is like another window into that reality again. Like it's, if that makes sense, right? It's when we establish an absolute, the entire dynamic relativistic world seems to reorient itself to these absolutes. I guess what zero did, right? Ushered in calculus and telecommunications and all, all the modern digital renaissance. And then it seems like when we talk about Bitcoin and the promise it holds, it's another one of these massive reconfigurations <laughs> of human existence around a new absolute. Yeah. And I agree with all of that, uh, all of it. And I, I, I'm certain that the word God uh, and the, the, the way people interpret it ha has a lot of value to a lot of people, of course. Uh, and, but with religions, I also believe that the word sin has a lot of negative value for people because they can think that just because I slept with this woman, that's why my child died in this car crash and, and come to, to absurd conclusions like that and blame themselves a lot because there's a lot of, you, you know, um, inherent sin, that, that notion of uh, you're really a bad person. Uh, and that, that part, I think that has negative impacts. But, but with Bitcoin, to tie it back to that and uh, not make this about any religious thing. Um, the, I can't think of anything else that, that can only do good the way Bitcoin can. Because even speaking about it and even, even arguing against it is mostly doing, it's doing a net good to, to, right. uh, to humanity. And I have a very hard time seeing it as something doing anything bad with like the civil unrest in, in places in the world. It's never because of Bitcoin, it's because of fiat and it's because of other things, but it's never because of Bitcoin. And uh, yeah, I can think of like, I know a guy here in Sweden that got robbed of, uh, he was a public Bitcoiner and there was there were criminals in his house and they, they, they basically did a $10 wrench attack and and that was horrible, but was that Bitcoin's fault? 
<laughs> I can't really say that it was. They but, were successful? Even, yeah, I think they were to a large extent, at least. Of course, they could not know how many Bitcoins he actually had. So, uh, but bad things happen and bad things will happen in the future too. There, no doubt about it. But uh, <laughs> you take away the profit motive from, from violent attacks, uh, this thing we discussed before, uh, the more we do that, the better off we are. Uh, so, so yeah, it's, it's beautiful. The, but I really like to, to, to take home that point that, uh, that everything, Bitcoin is everything, Bitcoin, the word and the Bitcoin, the whatever is, it's all connected to the same phenomenon. Um, so we, we, we do play a part in this, Robert. We play a, a bigger part when, than we think, I, I, I think, because we, we publicly talk about it. And that's, that, that is somewhere down the line, what we're doing right now can maybe help someone in a dire situation in a bad country somewhere escape that country or stand up for their rights or, or doing something else. Uh, I mean, every time we retweet something about the, the, the Talicon campaign for the Canadian truckers or uh, someone in Venezuela escaping with his Bitcoin intact, uh, uh, we are sending a message to the rest of the world that this is possible. Even when we send, we, we retweet a picture of a, a uh, a bag of gold and rubles and dollars in a, um, uh, stuck in customs so that someone trying to escape Ukraine or Russia had their, had their possessions stolen by the customs officers of another country. We retweet that and we say, oh, oh this idiot didn't know about Bitcoin, obviously. He could have just memorized 12 words and crossed the border. That message gets across, and in time it will help not only other refugees, but it will help everyone, every Bitcoin hodler in the world, because everything we do and everything we say ultimately impacts Bitcoin's price positively. And I, I think that is so, so fantastic, and that's why I'm so passionate about this, and I, I will never stop doing it, because I know deep inside my heart that I'm doing something good for, for not only my children, but for all children. And it, it's just, yeah, it, it sounds, <laughs> it sounds tacky when I talk about it in these terms, but, but uh, it, it's a true passion because of, because of these thoughts. I thank you for sharing them. I doesn't sound tacky to me at all. It sounds almost religious which would be probably something you would take issue with but again I take if that we, as a compliment <laughs> for me it is a compliment we have to construct stories to live within and it seems like bitcoin is the most truthful story or one of the most truthful stories we've ever constructed and that is a good thing in a real deep sense of the word good um so newt thank you man thanks for coming on thank you robert for having me on again and uh, i'd love to do more of these when whenever we can and uh, 
hope to see you in real life again soon yeah likewise <laughs> last time was sailors fucking yachts <laughs> <laughs> or the bar afterwards speaking of good times <laughs> um good yeah times, I, I look man. i look forward to a reunion as well um and yeah maybe you just let my audience know where they can find out more about you or your work they probably know you already but just in case they don't yes of course i'll i'll do some shameless shilling here you can find all my stuff at knutsvanom.com so www.knutsvanom.com and most of my bitcoin stuff is on twitter i'm at knutsvanom on twitter uh i'd also like to mention that i'm attending three conferences at least this autumn or fall uh the first one is baltic honey badger in riga I will be there for the entire week. I'm doing a noob day thing with Gigi and the Wizard of Oz and Anita Posh and some other people uh, on the 1st of September. And then I'm talking at the main event as well. And I'll be attending a bunch of steak dinners too, if you want to come to them. Um, and when and is that next, again? Uh, the first week of September. So the main conference is, is the 3rd and the 4th. Um, if you haven't been, Baltic Honey Badger is one of the best Bitcoin conferences in the in the world. And to me, it's a nostalgic thing because that's where my real Bitcoin journey started. I, I brought 50 copies of Bitcoin sovereignty through mathematics to that conference. And I sold 25 and gave 25 away to key people. And after that... <laughs> Less than three years later, I'm with you on Sailor's Yacht. So, so that's uh, <laughs> that's my journey. Um, and uh, in October, I'm going uh, speaking at the um, Bitcoin conference in Amsterdam. And uh, there might be an announcement there. Who knows? <laughs> and after that, I'm going to the Free Cities conference in Prague. Uh, the, do you know about the Free Private Cities Organization? Uh, I don't. They're, they're called the Free Cities Organization now, but they used to be called Free, free Private Cities, and they have like contract-based uh, Austrian uh, Austrian economics-based cities. So you sign a contract when you move into the city, and there are city walls, and uh, the the city itself and its inhabitant make up the rules. Uh, and the laws of the city a pretty cool concept so uh, so so i'll be uh, in, in those three conferences uh and i'll visit madeira again a couple of times uh so i'm working on some stuff there uh, and uh yeah what else yeah i'm uh, the the publishing house that that published this book. This is their first, first book in uh, the original language. Um, but they do mainly translations of Bitcoin books. And you can buy whatever Bitcoin book you want there uh, uh, as a Christmas gift or whatever for, you, for your family that doesn't speak English. Uh, but the, there's a lot of uh, original works coming too. Uh, so I recommend that to you, Robert, uh, for your book, you should uh, contact uh, Nico, uh, 
he's at Omnifin uh, uh, on Twitter. Uh, and consensus, they, they take Bitcoin payments and you get 10% off if, if you pay with Bitcoin and they have a referral code program. So you can use the referral code uh, Knut Swanon to get another 10% off. Uh, all the links are at knutswanon.com. Um, where you also find some stunning everything divided by 21 million merch, uh, t-shirts and hats and so on. Um, yeah, that's basically it. Beautiful. Um, we'll link to all of that in the show notes as well. And Knut, thanks again for doing this. Yeah, and thanks again for having me on. So uh, hope to see you soon, Rob. See you Thank soon. You.